Evacuate! Evacuate! Beep, beep, beep! Evacuate! You're listening to Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple. and related technologies and businesses, nothing is so perfect that it can't be obliterated by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, March 9th, 2012. We have two sponsors we'd like to thank. First one is Harvest. Go to getharvest.com, use coupon code 5 by 5 get 50% off your first month. Tell you more about them as the program continues. And of course, by Rackspace.com, one of the most awesome places you could host pretty much anything. Hello, John Syracusa. Hello, Dan Benjamin. How are you doing today? Today's Friday. It is. Been an exciting week. It has been. A lot of stuff, a lot of stuff happened. That's true. Anything you want to talk about? I think there is. Why why are you lower volume today? I could be louder if you'd like. It might just be my computer. You're not you haven't changed anything on your end. Not a thing. But I can I can boost the signal if you'd like. Do you I edit, should I edit this out? Do you want me to leave this in? It's part of the show. It's up to you. I'm just I like it. It's real. Fascinated when things change. <laughs> the more the more things change, the more they stay the same. All right, we got a lot of stuff to get to. Let's do it. I'm actually going to start with a bunch of follow-up on file systems. I know I usually try to keep my topics that might have minority interest, let's say, to two shows or fewer, usually one show on the topic and then maybe one show full of follow-up and then try to cut it off, kind of like I did with the uh, video game controllers. But there's still too much good follow-up on the file system stuff. Uh, So we will eventually get talking about the iPad. Don't worry. Uh, But I do want to go through the last batch of file system follow-up before I get to that. I can't believe there was uh, any follow-up. There was lots, lots <laughs> of follow-up. Uh, all right. So the first one is from, this is a email from Adam Milky. I talked about ZFS deduplication, I think, on the last episode. And I mentioned in the show that I didn't know whether it happened at the time you did I.O. or at a later point, and there was some job that went and deduplicated. Lots of enterprise storage products do that after the fact deduping, where they will just crawl over your disk and find the blocks that are in common and discard all but one of them. Uh, ZFS deduplication actually is synchronous. Uh, So it happens when you do the I.O. And there's a significant memory overhead to it because it has to keep track of all the different checksums and everything to be able to quickly determine if there are duplicates. Uh, and it happens synchronously. The, the rationale given on on the uh, uh, on the blog entry where I read this is that they assume that CPUs have many cores and the CPU cost of searching through that table and finding duplicate blocks, uh, that they'll have plenty of time to do that because I.O. is always going to be much slower than CPU and the, and the number of CPU cores keeps proliferating. Uh, and he also had a point about... Uh, that Solaris has a sort of time machine-like mechanism that uses ZFS. Uh, the last show we talked about how time machine could be made more efficient by using some of the features of ZFS. And Oracle has done something very similar to that. They have something they call Time Slider. I've linked it in the show notes. That is a typical kind of Unix, Linuxy interface. So there's no big fancy star field and windows going back into the distance. But it's like a slider control for going back in time to look at all of your uh, different files. And it's built on ZFS snapshots and all the stuff we talked about on the last show. Uh, we also discussed on the last show 
uh, in the context of SSDs, the idea of this distinction we have between memory and disk and how as disks stop becoming actual spinning disks and start becoming memory chips, how uh, the storage hierarchy could be unified into one uh, model. Uh, and I mentioned this wasn't a new idea, and Hugh Fisher wrote to tell me that a specific instance uh, of uh, this being done in the past, in the 70s, uh, IBM developed a series of machines, uh, and I, I think they're still selling them. They're called System 38 and the AS400 line. I've only ever heard of AS400. System 38 looks vaguely familiar. Uh, that do do this, that have a unified memory file system type of model. Uh, so there you go. It's happening. It It's Happened long ago, and it continues to happen, but certainly not in the PC space. Uh, Sean Cohen writes in that Palm OS, of all things, actually had a unified memory model back in 1.0. Uh, mostly because they, all they had was RAM. This is from the, the Palm Wiki. Uh, Palm OS 1.0 does not differentiate between RAM and file system storage. Applications are installed directly into RAM and executed in place. Uh, so that's that's neat. That actually kind of went away when Palm OS 4.0 was introduced and then it started to look more like a file system and RAM. Uh, there was also ROM in the original Palm. You don't hear much about ROM these days, but the original Mac and many older computers had some read-only chips that contained like a base version of the operating system or some routines that are, were always going to be used by the operating system just so they didn't have to take up precious RAM with that information because the RAM was more expensive than ROM. Uh, Rick Farabeau writes to tell me that uh, modern hard disk drives do have their own error correcting mechanism built into them. So they use uh, ECC fields on the sectors on the disk and try to detect and correct uh, errors of various kinds. Uh, he apparently began his career in the 70s at IBM and worked on the, in, in the disk drive group, worked on the Winchester family of drives. Do you remember that name from I back sure in the do. day? Sure, of course. Yeah. Uh, and he worked on making disk drives work with the IBM 370 slash 135. I love IBM's product names. It's always letter and number slash other letter and number. Uh, he also says his son listens to the show. So hello, Rick's son. Your dad is pretty cool. Uh, Andrew Richards pointed me to a talk <laughs> by Avi Miller of Oracle at LinuxConf AU, the Australian Linux conference in, in 2012 in January. So this is a very recent uh, talk. The title of the talk was I can't believe this is butter. A tour of BTRFS, but it's not BTRFS. It's ButterFS, but I keep saying BTR. I don't feel so bad about saying BTRFS because I watched this video and in the video, the presenter frequently is typing at the command line and the command line tool for fiddling with ButterFS is called BTRFS. So he's speaking as he's typing, trying to say, okay, and I'll just type what he's, what he, you think he would say, I'll just type butterfs space list space minus whatever, you know. He's, but he says BTRFS because he's actually typing the letters BTR. He can't bring himself to say butter. So I don't feel so bad about flubbing the name so much. Uh, but the reason I bring up this video and it's in the show notes is, uh, one, I think it's pretty neat and the guy is, is uh, has a fun personality. It's not a very dry uh, presentation. Uh, and at the end of it, they did something that I had never heard of that I thought was... Uh, a phrase that I can't use in this program, but uh, let's say pretty neat. Uh, he had an ext2 file system, and he said, I'm going to show you how you can convert this to ButterFS. And the way the conversion works, he didn't go into technical detail, so I'm going to make some speculation about the actual under the technical underpinnings, but the, the end effect is what, what he demonstrated. The, the way it does this is 
initializes a BTR uh, ButterFS file system on top of your existing EXT2 file system by making all the metadata structures to point to the data on disk, but the data that it points to is all the data where it existed in the EXT2 file system. So it doesn't modify your EXT2 file system at all. It just makes a bunch of new metadata that says, okay, this is over here, that's over there, this piece of this file is over here, this is the information about this file. And when it's done doing that, and you reboot, and, and you reboot, uh, tell, you, you, edit, you edit the etcfs tab and tell it that your file system is now ButterFS, it's not EXT2 anymore because it had already written the information. So you can boot from this. And when you boot, it looks like you have a brand new ButterFS file system with a snapshot and the snapshot points to the exact state it was before you did the conversion. And, you know, and then he, you know, he installed a bunch of stuff and showed how because this is ButterFS, we can roll back because we have a snapshot and all this other stuff. But what you can actually do is roll back to the very first snapshot and in the very first snapshot, your file system was the XT2FS. So you can roll it back to the, the exact point at which you converted the volume and it will become an EXT2 file system again. He doesn't actually do this in the video, but the, the point is that you've non-destructively changed your entire file system. And the reason you can do that, of course, is because ButterFS's copy and write is never going to overwrite the, the blocks that make up that EXT2 file system. It leaves all the data exactly as it is on the disk and just writes new data to different locations. And so it, it's, it's kind of, you know, once, once you go back to the very, very last snapshot and you remove all the, all the ButterFS stuff, what you're left with is a valid ext2 volume that you can boot from i thought that was amazing and a really fun consequence of copy and write like look we're not actually going to modify any of your data and suddenly one file system can look like it's another one because we will just point to all the same data in the same location so that was cool uh, so thank you andrew for pointing me to that video Boyd Waters asks if I ever played with FreeBSD's uh, Dragonfly Hammer file system. I've heard of it. I have not ever read much about it. I put the, uh, a link in the show notes to the page on the dragonflybsd.org site that describes it. It has the, all, a lot of the similar features that we've been talking about. Snapshots, file system, uh, multi-volume file systems, uh, integrity checking, uh, mirroring, uh, file history, all the things you would expect. It doesn't, I didn't look into the tech specs enough. I assume it's kind of like a copy and write file system because that's the only reasonable way to support all these features. But it didn't say explicitly. But that is another option, another free option for if you're trying to set up a sort of home storage area network with multiple volumes and you want it to be reliable and redundant. Take a look at Dragonfly BSD's hammer file system. Were you a big FreeBSD user? Never. Never. We used to love FreeBSD. We used to use that for all of our non-Solaris 4 uh, systems, like 412, 413, 412, 4 time period, before when they were starting to switch to Solaris 2. Remember that? I do not remember that. But we're all using FreeBSD now. Yeah, our sure Macs, are. Whether we know it or not, yeah. underneath there, a lot of the same code. Whether you like it or not. Yeah. Steve Schreiber writes into... Uh, Tell me that he we listened he listened to the whole show about file systems and, and got all uh, upset about HFS plus. But then he said he uh, we never told him what steps we take to mitigate this problem of, of HFS getting corrupted and stuff like that. So for all people who are wondering what should I do about it now that you've heard all these bad things about HFS plus, I would direct everyone to episode number two of Hypercritical way back when called Backup Vortex. <laughs> uh, the summary of the advice in there is have multiple backups in different physical locations. 
I do time machine to OneDrive super duper to another. Plus, I use a cloud backup service. I use Backblaze for one of my computers. I use CrashBlend for the other. That takes care of having your data backed up. For combating uh, HFS file system corruption, I run disk utility pretty regularly, not on a fixed schedule or anything, but every once in a while when I get that feeling I'm not going to be in front of the computer for a while, I will fire up disk utility and run repair disk, and I'll run repair disk on my time machine volume, I'll run it on my super duper volume, and then I'll run verify on my boot volume. And if verify finds an error, I'll reboot from one of the other ones and repair it. Just doing that, like, you know, people ask, is there something you should do regularly? I wouldn't do it every day or maybe not even every week because it is highly I.O. intensive and you could be, you know, wearing down your drive with all this extra I.O. and it takes forever. And, and especially when you do your boot disk, it locks things up for a long time. Uh, but I would put that as one of your regular maintenance things, unlike some voodoo like resetting your PRAM or repairing permissions or stuff like that. Like you want this to find no errors. You want this to be a no op. Uh, but I suggest running it because pretty frequently I run it and it finds some little problem and fixes it. And it's much better to fix those little things as you go than to wait until they accumulate and maybe they can't be repaired or have caused some problem already. And of course, what can I do about the bits actually flipping on the disk because of cosmic rays or other, you know, or just disk things going bad? It's not much I can do about that. It's not much anyone can do about that until we get the quote-unquote end-to-end data integrity. Uh, and speaking of uh, Rick Farabaugh's comments about the uh, the ECC things on drives. That's all true. But one of the points of ZFS is that it's end-to-end data integrity. That's their slogan, which means that all that the, the error correcting on the drive itself means is that the drive can tell, well, I was presented with this data and I wrote it to disk and I can try to be sure about that. But there can be bugs in other layers of the storage stack, like, for example, the disk, the disk controller or a crimped SATA cable or anything like that that will affect what appears to the drive. So if bad data gets to the drive and, and the drive dutifully records that bad data, it's that's not helpful to you. So ZFS is trying to say, if there's any problem anywhere in the chain of the storage stack, we will detect it. That's the end-to-end data integrity promise of ZFS. So that's why I responded to him and said that the error correcting codes on disk drives uh, are good, but not sufficient to ensure that your data actually is what you expect it to be. All right, that was pretty quick, but that was the file system follow-up I had for... Uh, and hopefully we the last of it. It's not so bad. Yeah. That's actually some of the shortest follow-up maybe you've ever done. Kudos. A lot of entries, but I went through it quickly, I think. So, ready to talk about the Apple event? I would love to talk about this event. Did you, I know that you have a, people may not realize this, but you are neither uh, full-time doing this show, nor are you full-time uh, as a writer for, uh, for Ars Technica. You are full time in a in a mystery company. You're a big big com- your company man, corporate stooge. And stooge? You, well, I'm, it's the polite term. That that's the polite one. I would I hate to hear the impolite one. Oh, you go to you're you're working stiff. Stiff is not, it's not getting better. All okay, right. but yeah. So the, that's so true, how did right? you see? I, I, did you see you watch it when you got home? Were you there? Were you following along online? Did your boss know you were doing this? I do wonder, though, sometimes if pe- people assume that I have three full-time jobs or two full-time <laughs> jobs. Because even two of those, it seems like, look, how could you possibly be? I don't know. Anyway, yeah, so you're right. That's not, uh, I was at work during the day. I followed along tangentially in the live blogs, you know, like the little streaming thing of text. But I didn't get to actually watch the video until I came home and the kids were in bed and so on and so forth. So that, that's how I watched. Uh, but getting the news is enough, you know. And uh, speaking of the video, a lot of people have asked that uh, I've tweeted several times about my uh, 
trials and tribulations trying to get a high quality version of the video because Apple will post it on its website, but it'll usually put like a web friendly version that's not so big. And and sometimes they have these super ultra high def, high quality version hiding somewhere. And I always try to ferret it out. Uh, so I put links in the show notes to the embedded video on Apple's website. If you haven't seen this presentation and you want to watch it, you can just go and it's on the website. And you can watch it. If you want a higher definition version of it and you want to be able to download it, not just stream it in your browser, Apple has video podcast uh, feeds for its keynote presentations, and they recently introduced an HD one. So I provided a link to the Apple Keynotes HD video podcast feed. It's still not as high quality as occasionally you can find when they're like streaming it live and you can, you know, dig into the QuickTime files and find the actual things that they're referencing in the CDN and pull down the .ts files and then cat them together. There's a whole... I've done some crazy things, but I like to have high quality archive version of this video. But the the HD video feed is what I suggest if you want to just have a nice downloadable copy that you can scrub around and and peek at stuff. Uh, and before we talk about the products in it, is this was this the first major product announcement without Steve being there? I can't I don't remember anymore. Well, they now I mean major in the sense that uh, it it was new. I. I guess so. I mean, there was the iPhone uh, 4S. Wasn't that announced while he was still alive and and, uh, toward the end there? My memory is so bad, I don't know. But uh, one of the things I noted from watching it is how, you know, is the first time it struck me about how the presentation is different uh, with Steve not here. And the main difference was that uh, his portions of the keynote presentations were imbued with his personality. That's true of all the presenters out there. It's just that his personality was different than theirs. So, you know, Phil Schiller, his personality is kind of, you know, goofy and fun. And he's always been like that. And his section of the presentation is like that. And and Tim Cook is very professional and he's all business and he's very serious and he's, you know, intense when he talks about the stuff that he's going to talk about. And now uh, Tim Cook has taken over a lot of the same stuff that Jobs has done, including the ending thing where he comes back on stage and uh, puts the palms of his hands together and says something <laughs> meaningful about the company as a whole. The thing I really missed about Jobs being there is that he was always just so kind of snarky about competitors. Like there was never there was never the moment in the presentation where. He's got some formal formal things where he's talking about the slides and, you know, a great display. And we really think this is a great blah, blah, blah. And there's always that part where he goes, look at these competitors things. They're crap. I mean, he doesn't say that, but like <laughs> his tone of voice says like, they, they're doing this thing. Forget it. You know, he always wants to jab the other guys. He's always wants to get in that little thing there. And it was like peeking underneath the, the, the polished presentation to the guy who's just got a chip on his shoulder or just is thinks his stuff is so much better than all the guys. He's just mad. They even exist. And no one in the current lineup of presenters has a personality that's like that. Or if they do, they don't let it show on stage. And, and one of the, one of the reasons jobs did is because who's going to yell at him? Like who's going to complain about this little unprofessional outburst? Same thing on earnings calls. When jobs is on earnings calls, everyone else is so controlled and careful on earnings calls, but occasionally you could get jobs to go off on some sort of little rant and say something, uh, sort of, not in the PR handbook or, or a little bit too revealing or a little bit uh, childish or uh, vindictive. And nobody can be relied upon to be like that in Apple presentations anymore. Everyone is still very professional. The closest you get is like, you know, Phil's, Phil's just, I don't think that's Phil's personality, period. Or if it is, it's totally his personality in private. But 
like when, when Phil Schiller was demoing the iPads connecting together with Bluetooth and having a garage band thing with four people jamming together, Phil at the end is like, I just wanted that guy at the end to take his uh, iPad and smash it on the ground like you're smashing a guitar. You know, that's as close as you'll get to have something sort of off script, although I'm sure that was scripted too. But, you know, uh, someone's personality showing through. But that's a very different kind of personality than, than Jobs. And I don't see Tim Cook. Tim Cook will tell you how everything's doing wonderful and how, how it's better than what the competitors are doing, but not in a, in a childish taunting way. And a little bit of childish taunting is fun. So I miss that and I miss Steve. Uh, KJ Healing in the chat room points out that Forstall has a little bit of that. You can yeah. tell Forstall has got a little bit of a, an attitude uh, and wants to slam the other guys. Uh, Forstall gets gets a lot of, uh, I don't know if you say bad press, but I, a lot of people say he's just trying to be a little Steve. Like he's imitating Steve's <laughs> personality. And, you know, he, he's looked at what Steve did and he wants to be like him. I don't, I don't know enough to know that's the case. I'm willing to say that that's, it just so happens that Forstall's personality is very similar to Jobs' personality. And He's not doing an imitation or trying to... He's just being himself. And and his personality is closer to what Steve was like. But he wasn't on stage. People were saying, where's Forstall? Don't worry, when iOS 6 is announced, he'll be there. You'll see plenty of Forstall. So, enough meta commentary. Uh, it's per- well, perfect time after your meta for our first sponsor. Good idea. Because you, you nailed it. 20 minutes. You've got this down. It's like a, you're a scientist. I'm a machine. You today. are. You're a machine. Harvest. It's our first sponsor. It's a painless time tracking and invoicing application. Some of the, the most innovative teams in over 100 countries use this. We use it. Happy Cog uses it. You heard of them? You ever heard of Volkswagen? They use it. And uh, it, it, we use it because it's great. That's the simple reason why. And I want you guys to try it. Uh, they just came out. I mean, you can, first of all, before I tell you what they just came out with, you can, you can use this on the web. I mean, that's really how they started. They were a website, but they've got an iPhone app. They've got an Android app. And they've got a brand new native Mac app, Harvest for Mac. So you can track the time right from your desktop. So here's the, here's the thing. You sit down, you start working. And then, uh, you know what? A client comes in the office. You get up and you walk out. And you oh, man, I forgot, I forgot to stop. Because there's this global hotkey where you start recording when you're, you're tracking your time, right? You forgot to hit stop. You come back to your desk. You're like, great. Now how am I going to fit? It's smart and it gets it. It knows what you're trying to do. It knows your machine was idle. It can take away the idle time. So you don't accidentally overbill your clients. And of course, you can switch back to your browser and get features like invoicing, visual time stuff, the project budget reports. Here's the thing. You go in there, you get a 30-day trial. It's free. You don't give them your credit card. You don't give them anything. You just create a sign-in and you're in and you're using it. But if you go to getharvest.com slash 5x5, it's very important, very important to use that URL. After your trial period, here's a coupon code. 50% off your first month coupon code is... Five by five. Very important. So uh, offer expires April 21st. I'd really love for you guys to try this out. We use this app and it, it really is great. I'm proud to have these guys as a sponsor. Getharvest.com slash five by five. So last week, we talked about what we thought or would be in the presentation. Yes. And I think I did pretty darn well considering... My complete lack of inside info. <laughs> I guess I was a little bit cheating by by being close to the event. Uh, so let, let's go over some of the things I said last week. You asked about the Apple TV, that I think there would be uh, something else, something not alluded to on the invitation, specifically about a TV thing. I thought the emphasis would be on the iPad, and, and if they had anything about Apple TV, it would just be a new one of those little black boxes with bump specs. 
uh, and maybe some 1080p content to play on it. And lo and behold, that's what we got. A, a new black box, 1080p support. Uh, and as I think I've said on past shows, I was going to wait to get an Apple TV until the new one came out. The new one is out. I ordered one. It will be coming on the 16th. Now, so. 10, 10, were you, were you specifically waiting for 1080p or you were just, you were just hopeful or you just said, you know what, if I, if I get a new one now, I know this will be what they're going with. Why, why now? Why wait? I, w- I was not going to buy one that only did 720 because I, my televisions are all 1080p. Why would I buy something that only does 720 I specifically wanted it as I also wanted it as a Netflix box because well Netflix doesn't even stream 1080p I don't think anyway it's just on principle why would I ever buy something that doesn't do 1080p I don't think it's out of the realm like even the cheapest Costco you know television sets bargain basement things do 1080p these days there's no excuse for something not to do 1080 so I was no I was never going to buy a 720 only uh, Apple TV I really hope they would add a Bluetooth remote they didn't but the up-res stuff is enough for me, so I bought one. And I'm, I plan to use it as a Netflix box, basically, because I have so many things that stream Netflix, but this one has no fans in it. And the TiVo, <laughs> the TiVo Netflix streaming oh. is now unusable for me because it's just so slow and unreliable and crashy. So uh, I would like to be able to stream Netflix without turning on the PS3, and I'm going to use the Apple TV to do it. And, and now I can finally do AirPlay stuff and all sorts of the other things that you get with the Apple TV that, that I thought were neat, but wouldn't be reason for me to buy it alone. Something John, our friend John Gruber pointed out is that you can now sign up for Netflix all on the Apple TV. That you're, In the past, you had to go to their website, sign up, create it, and then you'd go and you'd take your username and password, go to the Apple TV, enter it in there. You no longer have to do that. You can create your account. And my understanding is that it actually will bill you through your iTunes account. Uh, that you're not, it's it's not like you're now going to get a separate bill that Netflix is billing through that. And that you can do the same thing for those of us who are baseball fans. Uh, you can do the same thing with the MLB at bat. And I believe there's a couple other subscription services that you can now access and sign up right through the Apple TV and have billed through your iTunes account. Can you imagine what kind of deal Apple must be getting from Netflix? Like what cut of the of the subscriptions or some sort of per customer fee? Because man, like Netflix is asking oh, Apple. I know you have your own service where you, you know, provide video for money over this box, but we'd like to be on there too. And you know, customers like us, so can we get on your thing and use your billing system because it really reduces friction? And Apple be like, all right, but we're going to take who knows what that business deal is. But I bet Netflix is getting the short end of that monetarily. Uh, but it's still probably worth it to them to get access to those customers. I, I definitely think, and I think, I think Apple should be very pleased whether they are on the better end of that deal or not, simply because there are people like you who, you know, for whom Netflix is a huge selling point. Yeah. In fact, yep. we have, we have two Apple TVs right now. And one of them is, is pretty much dedicated just for my kid to watch the Netflix stuff on it. Like that's, it is a Netflix box for that, for that room. And no fans, man. No fans. It doesn't even Love get it. warm. Love and I'll, I'll tell you what else. Uh, the AirPlay, you're really going to enjoy AirPlay with games. Uh, if, if, because you can, you can simply project your games right up there on the screen. Now, there is a little bit of a delay and a lag. But if you've ever had your kid wanting to watch you play a game, like maybe the game is too advanced for your kid, although that, that seems reversed. Mostly kids are better at stuff. But there's a few games that I have that my four-year-old likes to watch me play as opposed to playing himself. You can just put those right on the TV. You can sit next to you and watch. It's great. I think I'll mostly try using it for like, 
showing photos and videos because right now I can do that in 10 different ways. I can show them from the PS3. I can, you know, I have to go to, to the computer and set up iPhoto and then iPhoto can export them and then various things can read them on the TiVo or on the PS3. It's so much easier if I could just do that wirelessly. Oh, yeah. In the same room with an iOS device sitting in front of the thing to just put up some pictures. And or from now, a different with, room, John, if you want. <laughs> yeah. Or, or now with like with PhotoStream and the new iPhoto for iOS, now I actually have access to like my actual photos. So this this will be great. I think it will be a good addition to the, the set of stuff I have in my house. So the iPad, my predictions on that were Retina Display. Duh, everyone knew that. Uh, I thought it would have the same case a little bit thicker. That was heavily rumored. Also true. We talked a little bit about the dock connector and whether they would replace it. I said same dock connector. That was right on. Pricing. I said I thought the pricing would be the same and they would push down by continuing to sell the iPad 2. That's exactly what they did. I said that I thought Apple should push upwards, but they were afraid to. And lo and behold, they didn't. There is no 128 gigabyte model. The top end price is the same as the previous top end price. The CPU... I said I thought that the A6 wasn't ready and it wouldn't be quad-core. And lo and behold, it is the A5X as rumored. It is dual-core, but they, they wanted to have quad-core somewhere in the presentation and on the spec seat. So they said quad-core GPU, where really core counting is not the way GPUs tend to be measured these days. But, uh, but that was an interesting uh, bit of marketing they did there. Cameras. I said I thought they had to have some, find some way to try to get some of their margins back. So I did not think they would have the iPhone 4S camera in the iPad. In fact, I said I, I thought I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't change the cameras at all. Well, they didn't change the front one. It's exactly the same VGA FaceTime camera that they always had. And the back one has the 4S optics, the optics from the, uh, the iPhone 4S camera, but not the same sensor. It's 5 megapixels instead of 8 megapixels. Uh, so they sort of split the difference there. So I'm, I was feeling pretty good about uh, what I thought was going to happen and what they actually did. But the, my big miss was the one I, I waffled about in the beginning. I said that previously I was so sure that they were not going to do LTE, but that in recent weeks I was feeling more doubtful about that. But I stuck to my guns and I said, I think no LTE. Well, I was wrong on that one. And I was right to doubt it because they, uh, they have LTE. And I, I find that a little bit surprising, mostly because... I thought the power consumption would just be too much, but that battery that they jammed in there supposedly has seventy percent higher capacity. It's not like you know, like they made it less than a millimeter thicker. So you're like, oh, how much bigger could the battery be? How much more capacity could it possibly have? You know, ten percent, fifteen percent. Apparently, it has seventy percent more capacity. So those chips in that screen really are sucking juice, and they they solve that problem by just jamming in more battery. It makes me wonder. I guess for the next year, for the next model you would assume they're going to go back to starting to get thinner again. And the way they'll do that is not by increases in battery technology, because battery technology increases very slowly, but by new chipsets that consume a lot less power than the current LTE chipsets, and maybe reducing the power of the screen if they possibly can. But not so much by saying, oh, now we have a battery that's the same size, but twice the capacity. That doesn't happen, really. That would be quite a breakthrough in battery technology. So Apple is running up against physics with the amount of stuff they're jamming in here. Which is another reason I think they should consider going upscale to possibly have, I don't know, I don't know how this, I've, I've thought about this a lot and I don't really see a way out for them. But I've, I think long term, the idea of an iPad that's larger than 10 inches starts to become something Apple has to consider and do. And at that point, you can fit all sorts of things in there and battery life can expand greatly. And now you're talking about like a professional pad. We're not there yet. We're not even close to there yet. And we, the, the real problem is how would the software work? You know, considering if you try to keep 
similar sizes for everything. Now, a regular iPad app is smaller in the center of the screen. You have to have these iPad Pro apps that are bigger. I think this will happen someday, but not this year, not next year, and maybe not the year after that. We, we did talk about the name briefly. You asked me what I thought the name was. I went back to the podcast and listened to see exactly what I said. Mm. What I said, my first reaction to the name is, I'm not really interested in that because it's not going to change the product. <laughs> That's right. Apparently, Apple's <laughs> not really interested in the name either. Because they they punted on that. Uh, when when pressed, as you said, so you're not going to commit to a name, I said that I thought if the case was thicker, then they would go with a three. But if it was exactly the same case, they could get away with two S. Uh, they decided to go with no name at all. And what I tweeted during the presentation was like, Apple in in the Jobs two era has been very uh, anti spec where they didn't want to compete on specs anymore because they kept getting burned competing on specs. They were, and the PC world was all about the numbers. And if if you show all your numbers, you are sort of accepting that this is how products are compared. You put them in a big table. You say how many megahertz, how many megabytes, uh, you know, battery life, screen size. You just do the specs and say, oh, well, for the ascent. And then the price is the big number. And you say, well, for that same price, I can get a PC that has better this, better that, better that because the numbers are bigger. And if you keep playing that game, Apple's always going to lose there because they they value different things and they put their money towards different things. Like, uh, you know, does this laptop have a case? Yes, check mark. Case, case. It seems like they're equal, right? Well, Apple would spend all this money on these uh, cases made of titanium or whatever, and that is not represented by a check mark. And so, yeah, their che- their CPU was slower, their battery life was worse, but the other parts weren't accounted for. So Apple said, you know what, we're just not going to talk about that anymore. Starting specifically with the iOS devices, we're not even going to tell you what CPU is in it. RAM? Yeah, they have RAM, but that's all we're going to tell you. We're not going to tell you how much RAM is in them. They really only wanted to focus on the specs that they think matter to consumers, like battery life or how long will the battery last. They don't tell you what battery technology they're using or anything like that. Uh, When it suits them, they will tout specs that they think they're ahead on. Hey, the Retina display, look at this resolution, it's bigger than HD. Uh, quad core GPU that's meaningless quad, quad core GPU means nothing to anyone but it sounds fancy and they need some way to talk about the fact that the A5 has fewer uh, doesn't have four cores because they touted the A5 dual core but it's like hey this is a spec we can tout twice as fast dual core whatever but they just don't want to play that spec game uh, and you know they only want to they only want to play it when for in the specific narrow instances where they can win uh and that philosophy has served them well. Moving the conversation from, you know, don't buy that iPad because you can buy a Zune that has more megahertz. <laughs> you know, silly conversations like that. And even in the PC space, talking less about the, the specs on the PCs and more about the, the intangibles. Well, as it turns out, there's one other number that Apple needs to expunge from their product line, and that is the number after the product. iPad 2, iPhone 4, iPhone 4S, uh, you know, iPhone 3G. That one little place where they let an, a, a number that you need to increase, let, they let that creep into their product lines. And they learned, I think, a hard lesson with the 4S where they said, you know, we're not going to call us the iPhone 5. We're going to call it the 4S. Same thing with the 3G and the 3GS. And they just kept getting slammed because the number wasn't one bigger. And it's like, well, last year it was a 4 and now it's still a 4, but there's a letter. Shouldn't it be a 5? You know, it's a spinal tap. Well, that's one louder, isn't it? You know, but this one isn't one louder. It's just got an S on the end. And so Apple said, you know what, fine. If you guys can't handle, you know, that, if, if that suddenly becomes how we're judged and how public perception of our products is influenced by the stupid number at the end of the product name, no more numbers for you. iPad 2, and then the new one is just called the iPad. So, you know, 
you're going to hem and haw about the fact that there's no numbers, but at least you're not going to say, well, it's it should have been the iPad 3, but it's the iPad 2S, and we're all sad now. Uh, <laughs> and as many, many people have pointed out on the internet, like, this doesn't phase me at all, and I don't understand how, like, you, maybe your initial reaction is like, oh, no numbers, that's weird. But the second someone reminds you, because everybody knows this, it's not like people know this, reminds you that the MacBook Air doesn't have numbers, the, the MacBook doesn't have numbers, the iMac doesn't have numbers, and somehow we all survive year after year with iMacs coming out. What is, is this the iMac 7? The iMac 28? I don't know. How can I tell that this iMac is better? It's just the iMac. It, and once someone reminds you of that, it amazes me that people persist in saying, Okay, but I still think it should be iPad 3. Why? What? Don't, what? don't you understand how these people are so okay with the iMac not having a number on it? And yet, still, when they've gone back and thought about it, are upset about the fact that the iPad doesn't have a number on it. If, if, you, need more, if you need more convincing that, that uh, why they should drop the numbers, is oh, the, the, the iOS devices are different than PCs. Well, it's clear that Apple thinks that the iPad is the successor to the PC. This whole post-PC thing in the, in the beginning of the presentation about this is a post-PC world and Apple is the leader in this space and all the stuff that we already know, but that's clearly Apple's pitch. If the iPad is the thing that succeeds the PC, why should it have to have numbers when Apple's PC products don't? It doesn't make any sense to me. Of course, the, the situation we have in all of the, the Mac realm is that we have these, I was calling them support names. Some people call them Apple Care names, but the, the products do have names. Uh, and for the real nerds, we know that it's like, you know, Mac Pro 4, 1. There are specific model numbers that are completely unambiguous that tell you exactly what machine you have. But then there are the, the support names like, uh, you know, uh, iBook. What are some of the names? I wish I could look some of them up. Like, uh, there used to be like mirrored drive door, Power Mac G4, or Power Mac G4 mirrored drive door, or uh, white iBook, late spring 2003. Like they'd have all these weird phrases that would uniquely identify Apple's support system, the particular machine you had. And they weren't the part numbers with the, with the numbers and the commas and everything. So there were two unique ways to identify your thing. One of them was techie and nonsensical. You know, the MacBook Pro 8 comma 2 is someone just pasted into the chat room. Uh, and then there were the longer names that had some parenthetical phrase about the time of release or the color of the thing or the dual USB iBook, all sorts of weird phrases to differentiate it from the previous one. Uh, and then finally, it was the product name itself. And even on the iPad, even though it was called the iPad 2 and they used iPad 2 to the marketing material, when you bought one in the store, it comes in a package that says iPad on it. It doesn't say iPad 2 anywhere on the package. And same thing with the iPods, the iPod Nano. The iPod Nano 2, the iPod Nano 3, the iPod Nano 4, they just kept making new iPod Nanos. And they didn't put numbers on them. And they, were, you know, they had product numbers and names and all this stuff where they could be uniquely identified too. So the name thing just boggles my mind. That I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised that people have the visceral reaction of, oh, where's the number? Like, that's natural. It's natural to have that immediate reaction. But once you've had the five, ten minutes to talk about it, and once you've seen the obvious rebuttals, I, I'm amazed that people don't find those convincing. And they continue to go, well, I think it should have numbers. Really, really dumb. Uh, let's see what else we have here. RAM. We never talked about RAM uh, when we were talking about predictions for the show. Or maybe we did, and I don't remember it. I don't uh, think we did, actually. So Apple does another spec that Apple doesn't talk about. They don't, they don't talk about RAM in the press room, room afterwards when the press goes in there and gets to talk to the Apple people. Ars Technica and other publications who are uh, read by nerds dutifully ask every time, how much RAM does it have? And the Apple people dutifully say, we're not talking about that today, whatever the hell they're, you know, 
polite no comment answer is. That's that's so silly and strange. Like the fact that they don't talk about it, fine. They don't they don't think that's something they need to emphasize. Don't don't talk about it in the event. But afterwards in the press room, when some nerdy publication is asking you, just tell them how much RAM it has. It's not like they're not gonna find out. On March 16th, they're all gonna get the machines, they're all gonna fire them up and load the little dinky piece of software that measures the RAM and say and tell us how much RAM it has. And you know, we have a pretty good guess now anyway. Everyone seems to think it's one gigabyte. Why not just tell us for sure? Why leave this? You know, what what does Apple gain by obstinately refusing to tell us this when asked? Don't list it on your spec page. Don't advertise. Don't put it in the presentation. But when asked directly by a press person for some obscure nerdy publication, just tell them. It's not, you know, it's not telling us does not make this information not known. It's just like a spiteful two-week delay in us finding out for sure. And, and similarly, there was a another weird thing where Apparently, in the press room, people were asking about the weight. Like, does this weigh the same as the previous iPad? And the Apple people kept saying that it did weigh the same. But it doesn't weigh the same. I mean, on Apple's own spec, on the, if you were to go to their website, I think, and look it up, you can get a spec that says that it doesn't weigh the same amount. But in the press room, people were saying it weighed the same. So why would Apple's press people be saying something that's contradicted by their own spec sheets? And, that, and again, as soon as people get them, they can put them on a scale it's not like we're not going to know which one weighs more and somehow by Apple not telling us that that it weighs slightly more than the other one that, you know. So I was thinking about that. One is that they could just be mistaken and they didn't know about the weight difference. But the second one is that there is no real downside for them telling you it weighs the same because telling you it weighs the same, even if they know it to be not true, is good because it deflects the story for, for the for the publications that don't that aren't read by nerds like USA Today asked an Apple spokesperson does this weigh the same as the iPad 2 and the Apple spokesperson says yes the USA Today person publishes that because that they don't care I asked the Apple representative they said wait that becomes a non-point in their stories even like the New York Times the Wall Street Journal if the Apple spokesperson say it weighs the same maybe maybe Walt Mossberg would be picky about that and say, oh, actually, it doesn't weigh the same. But for a lot of publications, I'll just print what Apple tells them. So that's upside for Apple because it deflects the story from talking about how this is slightly heavier. And if you know, and when eventually people get the things and weigh them or they go and look at the spec sheet and see that it's different and they call them on and say, hey, Apple, you said these weigh the same. Apple will say, well, come on, it's like 80 grams. It's basically the same. And that's true. It is basically the same, which is why Apple thinks it's a non-story and why they don't want people to talk about it. Uh, so that could be a slightly evil PR strategy to say, look, if we just tell them it weighs the same, it just makes things easier. The, the nerds who want to know, we're going to find out anyway, and so what? And the people who don't know, it's basically the same anyway. Let's not make this a story. Uh, the other thing was the thickness. They In the presentation, they showed what the thickness was, and you can look up on Apple's spec sheet what the thickness of the iPad 2 was and compare the two numbers, but they didn't make a big point out of it. Uh, in the press room, they wouldn't allow any of the press to take out their own iPad 2s, which I'm sure all of them had, and lay them down next to the iPad 3 to do all those pictures of like, let me take a picture with my iPhone. Here's the iPad 2. Here's the iPad 3 from the press room. You can look at it from the side and see which one is a little bit thicker. Everyone's going to do those pictures once they get their units to do their real reviews. Apple, I guess, didn't want those pictures to happen now. And the excuse they gave was like, well, the iPad 2 looks so much like the iPad 3, uh, and we don't want people taking these things out of the room. Which I seems like it makes sense. It's a good kind of PR type excuse. Uh, but if you think about it for a couple seconds, like, well, maybe if you're inviting press to your events who you think might steal the iPad 3, maybe don't invite those guys next time. 
that's a little bit of a glib answer because you could say, well, if, if we knew they were going to steal it, we wouldn't invite them. But, you know, we won't find out until the first person steals one and then it's too late. So really, we'd rather not let you have things like that. So the test of this will be next year when the iPad, whatever, the new iPad comes out and it, presumably it is thinner than the current one or maybe at least stays the same weight or Apple doesn't have anything to hide about the thickness. Will then it become acceptable for the press to put their own iPad 3s next to the new ones and take photographs of it. As these are all things you can ask Gruber about because he's actually in that room. I'm just going on, you know, right. reports that I've read from other people who are in the room. But it's just weird. Apple PR is weird. Sometimes they're weird with a purpose. And I think all the things they're doing here, I can imagine reasonable purposes for it and not saying the weight's the same, not allowing picture side by side. Not not telling people the RAM is the toughest one that I that I can you know figure out, and especially if you've doubled the RAM, like if it really is one gigabyte going up from five twelve, answer that question. It's all, there's only upside really. I know you don't want to emphasize the RAM, but I think just telling publications in the press room is okay. You're not offering that information, but when they specifically ask for it, just tell them the answer. It's silly not to. We're going to find out as soon as we get the units anyway. Uh. FaceTime versus EyeSight. Did you notice this in the presentation? Yeah, they, there is an EyeSight camera, specifically something identified as an EyeSight camera. Yeah, and this is the thing you miss. Like when I was at work watching the live blogs go by on the window on the side, these nuances aren't expressed. Uh, someone in one of the transcripts typed the word EyeSight, and I thought it was funny they used EyeSight, but when you watch the actual presentation, Phil Schiller says, I will read his exact words here, even though they're a little bit weird. When the camera that gets of when when the camera gets of such quality and capability that you're proud to use it as your everyday camera for photographs, we call it an eyesight camera. So that sentence is in the presentation to explain to people who are paying attention why they're calling this eyesight when previously they were calling you know they, they didn't have a name and they were calling things FaceTime. So the implication there is that FaceTime means only suitable for video conferencing. So if you just want to see your face and send it to somebody over a low bandwidth connection, you use a FaceTime camera. But once the cameras cross a certain threshold of quality. Uh, that Phil has defined as something you're proud to use as your everyday camera. That's There's quite a, a bit of strange emotional uh, connection put up in there. It, it's not about quality. It's about you being proud of it. I'm proud to use this as my everyday camera. Would, would someone really be proud to use a gigantic iPad as their everyday camera? I don't know. But uh, at the very least, it's clear that once the quality crosses a certain threshold, they call it an eyesight camera, which to me is really weird because the birth of the eyesight brand was in a camera that sits on top of your monitor and faces you for the purpose of video conferencing. But now somehow FaceTime is the camera that faces you for the purposes of video conferencing. And iSight is the one on the back of your devices that's the high-quality thing that you take videos with and pictures with. A little bit weird. Yeah. Uh, and finally, I haven't read this yet, but I linked it because this stuff is usually very good and nerdy. And text coverage of the new iPad is filled with specs. He, For example, he lists one gigabyte and speculation and information about the GPU and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, so I would recommend people read that while they're waiting for their iPad 3s to arrive. And yes, the, the marketing name or the Apple Care name or the support name, not the marketing name, the support name of the iPad is iPad in parentheses third generation. So not very confusing. If they really do release one of these every year, it will still be very clear which model you have. I don't know what the the number common number version of it, the thing is maybe it's iPad three comma one or something. Who knows? So that's all I think I have on the iPad introduction. You order, you order yours. 
I'm I'm still waffling on that. Hmm. I'm gonna get one probably. I guess kind of what I'm waiting for is to see whether I end up going to WWDC. Because if I go, I'd like to use this as my main device. I I brought my wife's iPad last year. And it worked pretty well for me. And it was certainly easier to carry around than a MacBook Pro, which I also brought. So if I go, I will want to have uh, my new iPad 3 with me. But if I don't go, I don't know. Maybe I'll wait a little bit longer. I also don't like to get the first batch of, of devices. If there's some sort of problem with them or the screens have some sort of yellowing thing or the home buttons get messed up, I just let, let the early adopters work that. I know you just get it replaced under warranty. It won't be a big deal, but I just don't want the hassle. So I'm going to wait on that. When I do get one, I'll probably get a 32 gigabyte black Verizon 4G model. That is my expectation. Okay. Good model. Yeah, that's a, that seems to be the, all of our devices in our house are 32 gigs black and if there's 3g on them or any kind of uh cellular technology it's verizon that's exactly what uh what we got here there you go good choice yeah i heard marco getting his uh now he got the millionaire the millionaire model is what he got that's right the millionaire (laughs) millionaire model uh which is basically the the highest end everything maxed out everything i this is the first one at&t though he did because where he lives in uh in brooklyn uh that apparently service there on AT&T for him is phenomenal. I don't understand why he would be using the, I, I didn't, this didn't occur yeah, to me to yeah. ask him, why would he be using the 4G at, at home? But maybe when he's out and about in town, it's better for him. But I, I think universally here in the U.S., people, people report that Verizon gets better coverage, although maybe the speeds on AT&T are better. But, uh, With LTE, I don't know if that's the case. I, I, like, I, here's another question uh, that, that's come in. Do you know if people, and I know this doesn't apply to an iPad because you can't do calls on an iPad, but do you know if LTE it shouldn't have that limitation for the CDMA uh, users where they can't do data and voice at the same time? Again, I know you don't do this on an iPad, but do, do you know what the status is of that? I would assume that limitation is gone okay. because I believe in limitation inherent in CDMA right. and will not be present at all on LTE. And that's the other thing. Like the Verizon is like, well... You probably get better coverage, but AT&T speeds are better when you're in some place with good coverage of both. But for LTE, I don't know what the answer is. Is Verizon's LTE just as fast as AT&T's, assuming same signal strength? I don't know. I always get Verizon because the whole purpose of having cellular connection is you are away from Wi-Fi. And when you're away from Wi-Fi and want a connection, the most important thing is not the speed of that connection, but whether you can get a connection. And I, I do not get good signal from many cell carriers in my house, but... The only time I ever use 3G on uh, the iPad that we have with 3G or my wife's iPhone is when we are away from our house on vacation somewhere else. So we'll buy we'll buy a month of 3G when we go on vacation to the beach or whatever. Or if we go somewhere and want to use the iPad as like a big GPS or something or getting from the airport to a hotel. And, you you know, we're in a different state. We're nowhere near, you know, so the coverage at my house is not that big a factor. So. I just want to have the best odds of wherever we happen to go getting coverage. And so that's what I'm going with Verizon. Want to do our second sponsor? Sure. It's Rackspace.com. More than 100,000 businesses trust Rackspace with their hosting and cloud computing. Most people think when they think of Rackspace, they think, okay, they have these huge data centers. Well, that's true. And you can go and you can get a completely customized, dedicated server in there. You can get that 
and you say, this, I want this much RAM, I want this much hard drive, I want RAID, I want whatever, and they'll put it in the rack and, and they'll, they'll do this fanatical support thing that they do where anything you need help with, anything you want them to do, they go do it. You want them to reboot it, they'll reboot it. You want them to install something, they'll do it. Whatever it is, figure out what's wrong with it, make it faster. That's what people think of. All that's true. But man, they've come a long way since then. That's, that's old school stuff. They've got cloud hosting, so you can get up and running in minutes. They've got uh, you know, complete load balancing so that you can spread your application, your website, whatever it is, across tons and tons of the servers in the cloud. They've got this beautiful control panel with an API interface that you can script. It scales, it's, it pay-as-you-go, all the modern stuff. Well, they also combine these two different things with what they call hybrid hosting. You get your dedicated servers for performance-intensive apps. You get cloud service so that you can scale without paying an arm and a leg unless you need it. And they've got Rack Connect. This seamlessly interlinks and interconnects both environments. And, of course, all of this is supported. The only company out there doing stuff like this. And uh, it, it, it's a great time to get started with them. They'll let you try it uh, 25 days, no risk with their managed cloud server stuff. So go to Rack. It's very important to use this URL. This supports the show. You want to support the show? Go to rackspace.com slash five by five. And uh, we love these guys. We appreciate their support. Really great stuff for you. Go check it out. That's it. Blowing your nose or something? No, I have. I was closing browser tabs, and by closing <laughs> them, I suddenly made the frontmost tab a video that decided once I'm the frontmost tab, I should start playing the video, and now I can't find where that video is. So I see. I think it was the presentation video. And you hate that when you're sitting there at your computer, and all of a sudden you start to hear audio, and it's like, <laughs> which, which tab is this buried in? That usually means I'm on the air. Yeah. It was coming out of... Luckily, I think I was muted, so you didn't get to hear. All right. I just turned off my speakers. So are, are you using the, the new Safari, by the way? I know this is a little off topic, might not be on it, but I'm curious to know because you were mentioning tabs. Are you using the new the beta of Safari? No, I'm not using it. I, you know, I'm still grousing about 5.1 that came with Lion. Mm. Still suffering through the, the, we now need to reload all of your tabs. Sometimes they announce it, sometimes they don't. Sometimes I'll just be sitting there using something and all of a sudden all of my tabs will reload. And that makes me very, very angry. I believe, John, that there was an update to Safari since the... Since that came out, I, I know for sure that the latest update seems to have addressed that problem. It also brings to Safari what I believe is one of the best features of Chrome, which is uh, an, an address bar that doubles as a search bar so that you no longer need to hit Command L to get over to the search. You just start typing right in the address field and, and it become, it's quite smart and figures things out. It knows what you mean. You're talking about Safari 5.2? Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't, I haven't played with that beta but it also uh, has fat tabs. Yeah, I saw Gruber complaining about that. I see. I actually think the fat tabs, the only time when the fat tab looks silly is when it's the only tab. Yeah, or yeah, maybe if you have who two. Who checks always show tab bar? I think that's the main problem. Don't have always show tab bar selected. I don't ever have that. Like, I don't want to see the tab bar when there's one tab. And I think, to, you know, in, my, in the real Safari in 513, I don't have that checked. And when there is one only one url open there's no tab bar at all so yeah. i never see one fat tab or one skinny tab there's just no tab does five two remove that option to not always show the tab bar uh no well so let's see if we go under the tab options right now uh it says uh, i i do not i do not see an option there under tabs uh it says open pages and tabs instead of windows never automatically always there's a 
checkbox for command click opens a link in a new tab and there's a checkbox that says when a new tab or window opens make it active but i i don't see a tab but if i if well and hold on uh let me me verify that i've got another machine here to check the 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 new one running so that's the current one now the new beta let me get this thing going here you know these these little uh these little airs they really do start up fast, don't they? So the options on the new the new one are identical. Yeah, I don't see. There used to be a thing that said, always show tab bar, yes, no. And I always turned that off. I said, oh, of course I don't want to see the tab bar when there's only one tab. So that option is gone, and maybe they just changed the behavior in 5.2. So well, now that it, it does show the tab bar. It does, it, I'm not seeing it. And, uh, and when you open a new window, there's no tabs. If you hit Command-T to start a tab, you get two tabs. One right, of them is... Close, close one of them, though. Then they both go away. All right. Well, so that's normal then. Yeah, but yeah I think I, I, I've seen the fat tabs, the two tabs. I mean, I've seen it in Mountain Lion. <laughs> Mountain Lion has Safari 5 too, so it has the right. same behavior. I, I think it, I, unless you have just the one or I guess the two tabs there, that does look a little silly, but really I think it's great. It, you can see the full titles and they just get smaller and smaller. Why would you not want them to be? You don't want it because it means that the, clicking on the second tab is a longer distance for your cursor to go. If you've if only got if the two. If your cursor is next to the first tab and you want to go from the first tab to the second tab, you've got to travel all the way across this vast expanse of probably empty first tab to uh-huh. get to the second. That's why, and that feels worse if you're used to not having to move your mouse as much. Obviously, the obvious advantage is now you can see more of the title, and that's why, you know, compromise is just shrinking the tabs to contain the title, plus or minus some, some fudging that if the title is ridiculously long, truncated anyway, I'm sure they'll tweak that stuff I'm, I'm not too concerned about it i do like that in 5.1 they changed to the chrome way of opening new tabs uh, i really like the safari way because i was used to it but then i i use chrome all the time too so then i was using one browser that behaved one way one browser that behaved the other way but now that my both of my browsers are behaving the same way that is opening when you open a new tab it opens to the right of the tab that spawned it instead of always opening at the far right of the full list of tabs now that both of my browsers do that i find it more convenient so i don't have to go all the way to the right to find that tab that just opened it's it's just to the right of the one that i opened it from but that's that's off topic i do actually have a second topic here besides the ipad if you think we're cut we're done with the ipad or is there anything else you want to talk about i i think uh, i think we've clear oh one thing do you do you anticipate using a case or cover for your ipad i'm just trying to think what the listeners will ask yeah my, my wife has a smart cover for hers uh, I think the smart cover has problems. The most annoying one uh, for me is when I flap it around to the back of the thing that the very last little bit of it doesn't stick well because the back surface of the iPad curves away from it and the magnets don't quite hold it. So I hate that little back flap falling down. I've tried all sorts of other schemes of accordioning up the accordioning up, accordioning up the case. So it's all scrunched underneath your hand. I don't like doing that either. Occasionally the magnets aren't up to the uh, the task of holding the thing on when I have it arranged into a little triangle. But for the most part, I think the smart cover has way more pluses than minuses. So I probably will get a smart cover from my iPad, but I still also want a sleeve to stick it in for further protection when I'm not using it. So that my plan is get a smart cover and then find some sort of sleeve that I can slip the thing into that will give an extra amount of protection and then take that sleeve and smart cover covered iPad and stick it inside, you know, a bag or a laptop bag or whatever, messenger bag, whatever I happen to be carrying. More likely a backpack. 
this is the second topic for the show if you think we have time. Yeah, let's hit the second topic. Second topic. Second topic is all my new electronics purchases, which I will now complain about. <laughs> wow. How, yeah. do, you, do you think we have enough time for that? Could be, that could be huge. I could just hit one in the highlight, but it, one of the things I'd love I did to purchase was a, uh, I upgraded my wireless, not my wireless, my internet connection at home. So now I am 35 megabits up and down. You're on the, for those who don't remember these conversations, you have Fios or Fios, as you say. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is provided to you by what company is it? Is Verizon. It Verizon. Yes. And that means you have 35 up and down simultaneous. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's like a paradise. It's like living, you, you, you literally live in heaven. It's pretty good. But you and, could, yeah, you could go up to not, what, 100, 100 by 100, right? Well, it's all, I'm sure they will keep cranking it up. Like, this is the same price as my old 2515, because they just, for, because of competitive pressure, because I can also get Comcast here and I can also get RCN, I believe. So there is competitive pressure. I can get more download speeds from Comcast, but Comcast connections are comically asymmetrical, where it's like 72 <laughs> megabits down and two up. And that's no way to live. It's no way to live. So, yeah, I do this. And, and Verizon's not that good about capping you either because I do those speed test sites. I don't know how accurate those are. Maybe they're, maybe they're fudged. But I always get more than 35. I can get like up to 45 megabits down just because they, it's probably too much work for them to accurately cap the download speeds in some situations. But I do like having good all those speed. But anyway, as part of, that was part of a big reshuffling that I did. And my big reshuffling was finally getting rid of the standard definition television in the bedroom, which had... A built-in DVD player, and like the kids would watch movies in there occasionally. And it had my old Series 2 dual-tuner TiVo attached to it, recording standard-def programs. And I had one of those giant Verizon standard-definition cable tuner things attached to it. And then the TiVo would have to talk to the giant standard-definition cable tuner thing either through an IR blaster or through a serial cable and uh, we use serial cable because we thought it would be more reliable, but occasionally the TiVo would fail to correctly change the channel on the tuner and record the wrong channel. And it's just, it was just a mess. And we knew, you know, it's, it was only a matter of time before that all got replaced with HD. So I got a new HD TV up there. I moved the, uh, the TiVo HD XL from downstairs to the upstairs. I bought a Blu-ray player for the upstairs. Man, so it's like Christmas kids, in your house. So now, so now the kids can watch the movies on there still because, you know, once the TV goes with the DVD player, and that meant that I needed to get a new TiVo for downstairs. And rather than talking about all the other things that I did, and by the way, I did this in a one giant thing where I had to get the Verizon change to the service, the new cable card, uh, the new internet service uh, limits. It also changed my phone system, changed the channel lineups that I was receiving on HDTV, bought a new television, bought the Blu-ray player, the, 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 uh, replaced the TiVo with a new TiVo, uh, all the new cabling, uh, the new wireless connection for the upstairs TiVo because there's no wire thing. I had to get all that stuff arrived at the house at the same time so that I could sit down when the weekend actually came and do everything at once while everyone was out of the house in like two or three hours without saying, oh, I, I missed the cable, or all this doesn't work, or this thing didn't arrive in time. And it was pretty successful. Basically had everything arrive at the house within a day or two of each other. All that was ready and waiting on the Saturday. The kids and, and the wife leave the house to go on their, their morning activities, and then I just descend on the living room and bedroom and tear everything up. The only thing I was missing was a right-angle HDMI connector so that the cable doesn't poke out of the side of the upstairs. I can't believe that oh, you forgot that. I mean, come on. Who like who does that though? That that's one of my minor complaints <laughs> about the television, which I don't won't talk about today. But uh, this four HDMI 
inputs on it and I didn't think to look where they were. And so one HDMI input is on the back and that goes to the, the TiVo. But then the Blu-ray player has to go into one of the all three other inputs were on the side, you know, and like so one or two on the side is for when you want to just connect something up temporarily. But who puts three inputs on the side and one on the back? Because then you have this cable poking straight out of the side and you try to bend it so it doesn't, you know, then you're looking at the TV and you can always see this little curve of a cable poking out of the side. So I had to buy a right angle HDMI adapter so that the cable wouldn't poke out of the side. So it's the one thing I didn't have arriving time, but everything else, I had everything all together and it all worked. No Verizon installer had to come to the house. The cable card activation worked nicely. But the main thing I want to talk about is the new TiVo for downstairs, which I had been putting off buying for a long time, and that is the uh, TiVo Premier Elite. I didn't want to buy a new TiVo Premier because as I talked about on the very first episode of the show, I have many complaints about TiVo, and I couldn't believe that the TiVo products user interface and experience of using continues to get worse even as time progresses and in theory hardware gets faster and the premiere in particular changed its interface uh, uh i believe they're using flash for it but whatever they're using it was way slower to navigate the menus you'd hit down 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 and the thing would go down oh you want to go down again down <laughs> did you say down <laughs> i don't know did he say down i'll check oh yeah he said down and it was just maddeningly slow so slow it was unusable so recently the Premier Elite came out, which is a TiVo Premier, but instead of having two tuners, it has four tuners and a big giant hard drive and all sorts of other fancy stuff. And as part of that release, they released a software update, initially only for the Premier Elite, but I think now you can get it on any Premier, that supposedly made things faster, made the menus not seem so horrendously slow. Because I had used a, a friend of mine's TiVo Premier when he first got it, and I said, oh, this is so horrible, I, I can't buy this. I have to wait until they address this in some way. So the Premiere Elite and the software update that accompany it seem to address it in some way. And I think I talked about it in a show sometime in the middle of the run of this show about, about that software update and said, well, and the TiVo Premiere Elite saying, is the Elite, does the Elite have a faster CPU? Does it have more RAM? Uh, we know it has a bigger hard drive, but is there anything about it other than the software update that makes it faster? I think in my research, I determined basically that it's all the software update that makes this thing faster. Uh, but either way, I, I, I like the fact that the menus wouldn't be so like unusably slow. And I had to buy a new TiVo, and I can't buy the one I have upstairs, the TiVo HD. And that one angers me greatly anyway, because the, the name of the product is TiVo HD, but it doesn't have a high-definition interface, a user interface, and that, that drove me nuts. So here, here's the, the, the list of the good and the bad about this new product. A lot of people knew I was getting a TiVo primarily and wanted to hear what I thought of it. Uh, the good... It's got four tuners. And it can record four shows at the same time. That really works. It works fine. There's Just two, no two cable cards for that? No, one cable card. One cable card. One multi-stream cable card. Activation was pretty darn painless. Just plug it into the back of the thing. Follow. This. It's getting this thing. I, I feel bad for anybody who's not a nerd who... <laughs> It would have the, the amount of stuff arrive at their house that it arrived, you know, because you get the cable card and that comes in a package with extensive, incredibly detailed instructions on how to set it up. And then you get the TiVo, which also comes with like a giant fold out poster card instructions, a link to URL instructions, a giant manual of instructions, just really detailed, extensive instructions and step by step how to set things up. And then, of course, you have the television, which has similar instructions. All those instructions conflict with each other. None of them agree in any way. And so if you're presented with all these, like, well, if I follow the the instructions that came with the cable card, I can't also follow the instructions that came with the TiVo. But if I follow the instructions that come with the TiVo, at some point I have to do the thing. <laughs> it's, it's all, If I didn't know what to do, I would have been entirely lost because 
everyone wants to help you and they want to do they want to provide you with incredibly detailed instructions, but none of them know about each other because Verizon doesn't know that I have a TiVo Premiere and TiVo Premiere doesn't know that I have Verizon. You know, I, I feel bad for the people who have to set this up themselves. It is not simple at all. Uh, so, but the four tuners, one multi-stream cable card, no problems. Records four shows, can watch another one, absolutely no problem. Uh, I'm in the good section, so I won't say what's bad about four tuners. We'll get to that, Dan. And the next good item is that it does have an HD interface. That means the menu screens are rendered in high definition. Previously, believe it or not, the menus were rendered in standard definition and stretched to fill a 16 by 9 screen. So one of the major interface elements in the TiVo user interface is a colored circle next to your program that indicates the age of that program and whether it's about to be deleted or whether it's been permanently saved. And so every program had a little circle along the side of it. Well, if you take a standard def interface and stretch it to a 16 by 9 HD screen, all the circles become ovals. And it looks silly and stupid. And so now, finally, finally, TiVo, a product from TiVo, and the Premiere had this too, not just the Premiere Elite. A product from TiVo has a high-definition user interface in which the circles are actually circular. This ends the good portion of <laughs> this, this review. Uh, I guess I should also say the implied thing in all this is that for all of the complaints I'm about to make about TiVo, the reason I keep buying them is because I know of no better DVR product. And what I want is a DVR. I want a DVR that does these things. that can record many shows at once that accepts my uh, you know, cable subscription and all my premium channels and records them for me. And TiVo is the best product I've found that does that. So for all these things I'm going to complain about, which are all entirely true, I don't leave the product or not buy it or buy something different because everything else I've looked at has been worse in some way to me. So, for example, setting up my own uh, media center PC, I don't want to deal with that stuff. I want it to be like TiVo where it's an appliance and I don't have to worry about it. I just want it to be good and not bad. Uh, the the DVR that comes with the, you know, the Fios DVR, the ones that come with Comcast or any of the cable company DVRs, I've used them. AT&T U-verse, I've tried them all out at other people's houses. I do not like them. They are much worse. If I had to do a review of any of those products, it would be even worse than what I'm about to say about the TiVo Premier Elite. So, don't take this as saying I'm not a fan of TiVo. I've been a user of TiVo forever. They are the best that it, thing that does what I want it to do. They just have so, so far to go. So the bad. What's bad about this? The menu UI, though it is not unusably slow, is still super duper slow and is still slower than the TiVo HD's menu system. And the TiVo HD menu system, in turn, was slower than the TiVo Series 2. I don't remember long enough ago to say whether the TiVo Series 1 had slower menu, had faster menus than the Series 2, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. As I think I said on the first show, there's some, I can imagine some kind of allowance for the fact that when the TiVo product line went from recording standard definition television to high definition television, it's a tremendous increase in the, in the processing power required to do that, and the storage space, and the I.O., and everything. It's just a, it's a big leap to go from standard def to HD. It's like I don't know if it's 10 times as much, but it's a, a huge amount of extra data and complexity and computation. So I will give an allowance for during that transition period when they're changing from H from standard def to HD that it's okay for that first HD machine to feel a little bit slower. But the overall trend over the 10-year life of the company or whatever should be that the user interface gets faster as, as time marches on because as time marches on, hardware gets better and things should get faster. The, the iPad 2 feels faster than the iPad 1. 
The iPad 3, I imagine, will be available faster than the iPad 2. Certainly, when the iPad has been out for 10 years, comparing the user interface speed of the iPad 2 to the iPad 17, the iPad 17 should not feel slower. Am I crazy for thinking that? Every, <laughs> no, time, I, every no. time I bring this up, someone says, what are you talking about? It's crazy. Who cares? How, it should be, it's fine. It's not bad. It should get faster. <laughs> it should. I'm not crazy, right? It's, it should. It's it just like it flies in the face of, of logic, and it, it's just crazy. So the user interface is slower. It's slower than the TiVo HD. I don't like that. I bought a more expensive machine, presumably with more powerful hardware. It shouldn't feel slower. I should be able to go down, 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 and be down that number of items, not wait for the thing to catch up, not see it miss my my particular click. Uh, Jay Flynn wrote in to tell me that the Bluetooth remote, uh, uh, TiVo does sell a Bluetooth remote with like a slider keyboard on it, feels faster because I guess it takes the IR uh, recognition out of the loop. Right. I don't like the Bluetooth remote because it's shorter and squatter, so I haven't tried it. But I'll have to, my, a friend of mine has it. Maybe I'll try his remote and see uh, if that makes it feel faster. But it's my impression that it's not just like the IR signaling because it's the Series 2 and the Series 1 had IR 2 and they felt much faster. You'd go you, As fast as you could hit that little button down, it would move, move down. Uh, and speaking of the remote, one thing they changed in the remote, it looks the same on the outside, but they switched from four AAA batteries to two AA batteries. Uh, and the four AAA batteries were arranged in like a, in a grid, two on top of two. The two AA batteries are side by side. And that shifts the center of mass backwards on the remote a little bit and makes it feel less balanced to me. Next, I'm getting into super nitpicking, but I will refer everyone to the title of the show. Uh, I did like it better when the weight was more evenly distributed through the remote. Maybe I get more battery life out of these uh, the two AA's, but we'll see. So the second thing with the menus is that despite the fact that they put a high definition menus and the circles are now actually circles, <laughs> the old menu system is still there lurking very near underneath the surface. So if you go into like settings or something or one of the other screens, suddenly you're back into the old menus, the the old style menus. I, it's, I don't think they're standard def or maybe they are standard dev and stretch, but it's not, there's a there's a new look for the menus of a side by side thing of like a, a primary and then a detail view and this header. And if you do anything out of the ordinary, you switch back into the old menus. This kills me because TiVo, the first high definition TiVo came out in 2006, which was six years ago now, right. or close to six years ago. How long do you think it should take a company to convert its entire product line to 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 have the user interface in HD? How long before we don't see those old menus anymore? Certainly, for example, the new Apple TV that's coming out. They redid the menus. They're always redoing the menus in the Apple TV. I suspect that when you go more than two menus deep, you won't suddenly see the old Apple TV menu. No, they redid the whole thing. And by the way, the whole thing is in <laughs> HD. Somehow Apple can do this on a yearly basis. And yet with six years time, TiVo can still not expunge the standard definition or old style menus from its system. Can you reason out what, why? Can you reason it out from a software developer standpoint? return on investment maybe or like they, maybe they invested in like because they think who cares about this only people like me care but the menus are in hd uh, or uh, care about the jarring transition they say well if we had to dedicate we have these menus that work we have this whole system that works why don't we just redo the menus most people see most of the time but leave the more obscure menus in the old style because that's a better return on it. it's just it's bad prioritization uh, I think it's not it's not as if the engineers are at fault here. It's management deciding what we're going to pay money to fix. And what they're going to do is make a fancy new UI. And they're only going to hit the the seven screens that people are most likely to see. And the old obscure ones just use the old UI. And the other thing might be that they use Flash for the new interface and found out that it was not great performance wise. And uh, one of the options on the TiVo, both in the, the Premiere and the Premiere Elite, is you can say, 
please let me use the old menu. So you can switch the whole thing back to the old ugly user interface with the ovals and the stretched standard dev stuff. That is like a vote of no confidence in your UI saying, we made this fancy new UI, but if you don't want to use it, you can totally switch back to the old way, which, by the way, is still not standard dev. And so it, it does really amaze me that, like, maybe that's your thing for your first HD product. Well, we'll just have to hit the highlights. Let's not, you know, for the, for the first HD products, they didn't do the, redo the menus at all. The TiVo Series 3 used the standard dev menus. That was in 2006. The TiVo HD, which is like a more affordable version of the, the fancier season 3, in 2007, used the standard dev menus. Only in 2010, four years after they made the transition to HD, did they, did they put the very first high-definition menu anywhere in their product. 2010, four years later, after the transition to HD, the very first high-definition menu appears. And then, at that point, it's still not all the menus. And here we are in 2011, the premier elite still standard def <laughs> menus. And by the way, when it changes to the standard def menus, if you, don't have the, if you have the thing set to do native output because you want your television to do the scaling for you, like I, I always set the TOs to do native output. So if it's a 720p, send 720p to my TV because I have more confidence that my fancy TV can display 720p than I do to the, allow the TiVo to do the conversion for you. Like you can tell TiVo, always output 1080i. No matter what the signal is, if the show is 720p, convert it to 1080i and put it and send it to my TV or convert it to 10, 1080p and send it to my TV. I would rather have my television decide how to display 720p content, how to display 1080i, how to display 1080p, because my television costs more money than my TiVo, and I have more faith that those people know what they're doing. But that means that when you change menus, and it changes from like, uh, you know, a, a 1080i menu in the high def to the 720p, which is a stretched version of the standard def menu, you get this flickering, and the whole screen goes black, and then it changes. And Terrible. Then you, it's, 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 you know, if you showed TiVo to Steve Jobs, he would, his head would explode. <laughs> it's, it's everything wrong with it you could possibly imagine yeah uh, so the new UI does say okay we've got a wider screen now so now we're 16 by 9 and we can put things side by side which is good take advantage of the wider screen uh, but they did move some stuff down a lower level in the sort of menu stack so one of the items that I use a lot is the keep until thing where you go into a show and you tell it oh I have this season pass set for you to uh, delete the shows if you need space. But actually, this particular episode, I really want to watch. So keep this show until I delete it. And that changes the little circle next to the thing to a green circle. So blue circle means it was just recorded. Yellow circle means it's getting kind of old. And yellow circle with the exclamation point means, oh, it's going to get deleted soon. And then green means we'll never automatically delete this. We'll keep it forever. And so I frequently go through of like, you know, we have all these kids programs recording for my children. And occasionally my son or daughter will say, I really like that episode. I don't say it. They'll keep asking for it. And I'll realize... Oh, geez, I better, I better keep the uh, Martha Speaks episode where they go camping because it seems like the kids ask for it all the time. So let me mark it as green. Let me mark it to, to keep it forever. So the other episodes will just, you know, go off the end and churn or whatever. But anytime they want to see the camping episode, I'll know I have it. And that's a frequent task that I do on a per show basis, not saying keep every single Martha Speaks you record forever, but just the particular episodes the kids want, I mark. Now that there's two more menus deep in the, in the menu structure, I would really like a shortcut for that. There is a shortcut for delete. If you highlight a program and hit the clear key, it will delete the program immediately instead of you having to go into the program, select delete from the menu or whatever. There's no shortcut for keep until I delete, which is like, well, fine. You can't have a shortcut for everything, but the TiVo Premier Remote adds four buttons to it or four or five. It's like, it's got those colored buttons like red, green, yellow, blue, whatever those buttons you normally see on a, on a uh, Blu-ray uh, remote control. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't have a Blu-ray player in your house. I, I don't, but I've seen them. Yeah, the colored buttons they put on. They have a green button. It's not being used for anything. You push that green button when the program is highlighted and nothing happens. 
It seems like that should be the thing they should make to make the little thing green. Stuff like that uh, it, it makes me think that that someone's not paying attention to details. The other one, another example that would probably make Steve Jobs head explode is uh, actually I don't even have this in my notes, but I should talk about it anyway. So when I when I got the new the new TiVo, as you can imagine, of someone who lives their life on TiVo and has two kids, uh, we have a tremendous number of season passes. Season passes are where you tell the TiVo that I will want you to record every episode of this program uh, instead of me having to manually tell you every week to record it. That's called a season pass. And we have many, many, many of those. We have ones for kids shows, ones for the shows that we watch, and you can put different options on. You can say, record only, only the new episodes, record repeats and the new episodes. How long should I keep them? Should I keep them until you watch them or should I delete them if you don't watch them for a while? All sorts of options. And you, then you prioritize them. It's like a big long list and you reorder them so that uh, there's a priority order of saying, okay, well, these two shows conflict. Let me see which one is higher in the priority stack and I will pick that one to record. So as you can imagine, after well, it must be like 10 years of using Stevos, uh, or maybe not that long, but a pretty long time, we have a big complicated stack of season passes in a particular order so that we get the shows recorded that we want to be recorded. And when I get a new device, unlike, you know, your iOS devices with, with iOS 5 and iCloud, you don't just enter your username and password and then it sets it up for you. It comes to you as an empty device that has no idea who you are or anything about you. And it used to be that that was, that was it. Like when I set up my, my dual tuner series two, I plugged it in. And what I had to do was before I disconnected the series one, write down on a piece of paper. This was a long time ago, folks. We had paper. <laughs> the names of all the season passes, noting any of the options in the order that they were. And then I would sit there with the remote control in front of the series two, entering all these season passes again with a, with a five-way control. Up, down, left, right, and select. Up, down, left, right, and select. It takes a long time. So I was excited to see on the TiVo website, which they've been slowly trying to add features to, that there's a thing to transfer your season passes from one device to another through with a web interface. Now, ignoring the fact that in this day and age, it should be more like uh, iOS 5, where you just enter something in and it syncs it all up for you. I'm like, you know, don't look at gift horse in the mouth. Just go to the, uh, go to the mouth, go to the website and do this transfer thing. I mean, it doesn't hurt. Like, how could it possibly cause any problems? Because when you get the thing out of the box, it's got nothing on it. So even if it doesn't work, you have nothing to lose because you're starting with an empty box. And if it doesn't work, well, you got an empty box or whatever. So I hook the thing up, get everything ready, go to the website, go to the season pass manager thing, pick, you know, the TiVo HDXL from the source thing, pick the TiVo Premiere as a destination, select all the bunch of checkboxes, select all the checkboxes and say transfer, please. I click the button. It goes grind, 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 shows me a little spinner thing or whatever. And after a couple of minutes of that, it pops up a thing that says the following season passes could not be transferred. And it shows the entire list of season passes. And at the very bottom, it says this could be because the or th- this may be because the channel lineups are not identical on the on the TiVos. Or uh, some obscure message like that. And so what am I supposed to do with this information? The channel lineups are not identical. They're connected to the same cable. Did I set up the channel lineups differently? Am I going to go to the upstairs TiVo and the downstairs TiVo and compare their channel lineups <laughs> channel by channel because you can turn channels on and off. Like you can say, I don't want to see the standard F channels or I don't want to see, you know, uh, HBO Latino or whatever because I don't understand Spanish. Like you can turn them on and off. Do I have to get, and this is a, by the way, this is a, I have like a thousand channels on my Fios subscription. So I would have to go a list, through a list of a thousand things and match up for each one so they're identical if I was to take that error message at face value. But uh, as a longtime TiVo customer, I know enough not to take that message at face value. And I assumed... Maybe it's just not ready for me to transfer season passes because it's only been a day or something or something hasn't been updated in the system or God knows what. I was just like, 
whatever. I tried it a few times, same error message every time. I said, forget it. I'll do it manually. So I go and I start doing it manually with my little written list this time on, you know, an iPad so I don't have to write it with a pencil and paper. And enter the season passes manually in the order they used to be, accounting for the fact that now I have four tuners and there will probably be fewer conflicts and I get them all arranged. And by the way, this is another adorable feature of TiVo. When you're in the season pass list and you are rearranging <laughs> season passes, we have over 100 season passes. That sounds crazy, but there are many things that cause us to have over 100. One of them is that TiVo has no way to know that a show will never air again or that the program info changed. So for one season of Survivor, you set up a season pass for it. When the new season of Survivor comes, that is a new season pass. It doesn't realize that this is Survivor again. Right. It, has, it has no uh, notion of, of that, but that's, that's across the board. Yeah. And, and also doesn't realize that the old season of Survivor is never going to air again. You know what I mean? So that's why we end up with 100. And, and, uh, and it's like, well, why don't you just clean them out? Well, I'm getting to that. So you have this big long list of 100 season passes and you want them to be in a certain order. So here I am entering them and, and sometimes rearranging them and, and moving stuff into the right place. If you move one of those season passes in my season pass list and say, OK, please move this from slot four to slot five. The thing will tell you, please wait for five minutes sometimes longer go walk away you will not be able to use your tivo again for a long long time as you can imagine if that's how long it takes to move one in one position rearranging the entire list would take forever now there is a trick where if you go over to the moving around thing and you never say okay this is where i want it but stay in the little moving around column there's like little arrows you can go on the right side of each item you go up up down down if you just stay over there and don't accidentally hit left don't accidentally hit right and don't accidentally hit select, but just hit up and down. You can rearrange all of them, then say at the end, okay, now commit and then go walk away and, and find something else to do for five or 10 minutes. But of course, you are severely punished by accidentally hitting the wrong way on that five way pad. So here I am carefully rearranging this list of things and entering stuff. First, I have to enter them all and then I have to arrange them all in one step. And while I'm rearranging them, I can't accidentally hit the arrow because I've just lost five minutes of time and I might as well just walk away incredibly frustrating why does it take this long to rearrange them i don't know is there some sort of uh you know quadratic algorithm that's that that, that you know uh, scaling exponentially inside so that you can rearrange one of them in in you know one second but you can rearrange 50 of them in, in you have to wait for the heat death of the universe i don't know what <laughs> algorithm they're using inside there it's like but it's bad maybe they don't expect you to have this many season passes maybe i'm an outlier or something but it seems to me that I'm one of their best customers because I'm really using their product. Maybe I'm using it too much, but th- this is horrible. So I do all this work, get everything arranged as much as I possibly can. Because this is exhausting to sit there in front of the t- You're not being entertained. I'm not being entertained while I'm doing this. I'm just moving stuff around, getting things set up, making things are going to record. Then I go to bed. Wake up the next morning, come downstairs, and what do I find? I find that in the night, something in TiVo's back-end system, perhaps their website, had decided... Oh, hey, he wanted to transfer a bunch of season passes. Let me do that for him. Oh. And shoved some crazy subset of season passes, not all of them, mind you, but some of them, and then scrambled the order randomly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, now, so the new rule was, okay, let's never touch that website again. Does the season pass like migration thing obviously is pure evil. We can never go to that page again. Don't even load that page because if we accidentally load that page for all we know, it's going to scramble our season passes again. And then I have to start the whole process all over again of, of rearranging everything. Uh, not, not a good user experience, Tebow. No. But, and but, yet you're still loyal. But, yeah, but I've got one more. This is the one more thing. But there's one more thing. 
like all the stuff I kind of knew what I was going to get going into. I knew season passes are slow to rearrange. I, I figured the rearrangement thing was going to be a dud, and it was. It had one little sneaky trick where it, it totally destroyed all my work because I dared try to use it, and it figured out that the channel lineups weren't the same and tried to do it. But amazingly, amazingly, there's one thing that even I, in my pessimism and crankiness, could not have predicted would have been worse about this TiVo. I totally did not predict this. So on the TiVo, there's a little button on the remote control called, uh, I don't know what it's called, but it's the 30-second skip button. That's what a long-time TiVo's uh, users call it. Uh, out of the box, it wouldn't skip for 30 seconds. The first TiVo's, what it would do is skip you to the end of the program. It had, it's a little picture on the button is an arrow with a uh, vertical line, an arrow touching a vertical line, that sort of universal symbol for go to end. But there was a secret code you could enter on your remote, not so secret, that on the classic old TiVos would change that button from go to the end of the program to merely jump forward 30 seconds. And this button is great for skipping commercials because commercials tend to come in, in uh, multiples of 30 seconds or close to it anyway. Uh, and if you entered the secret code, that button became jump forward 30 seconds and the button to the left of it on the other side of the remote became go backward 8 seconds. So the little sequence is select play, select 30, select. That any longtime TiVo owner can memorize. It's like the contra code for TiVo things. That, en that enables the 30-second skip. So and, and luckily, TiVo supports this and remembers it even if you reboot the thing or unplug it from the power. It's kind of like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink supported feature of TiVo and has been for many, many years. Uh, so when this TiVo came, uh, I tried the 30-second skip button to see what the default was, and the default is not jump all the way to the end of the thing. The default is kind of like a 30-second scan, where it moves forward 30 seconds, but it does it in kind of a really, really fast fast-forward, even faster than the fastest fast-forward that you can do with the fast-forward scan button. It kind of goes 30 seconds, and when it does this, it does this weird animation with the playhead on the scrubber on the progress <laughs> bar, where it jumps way ahead of where it's supposed to be, then back, and then ahead, then back, and does some strange visual stuff. I'm like, okay, I don't like that. It's better than, I guess, jump to end maybe, which you can still do with some other sequences of inputs. But I like, I want my 30 seconds skip back. So I did, I did select play, select 30 select and realized it didn't work. I wasn't even looking at the screen, but I realized it didn't work because when you're watching, you have to type this when you're watching television. When you hit select when you're watching television with the new HD interface, it brings up a menu thing. Like that actually does something. Unlike on the previous TVOs where select did nothing and you were just entering your code and it was like, watching your remote input to accept this code. So then I had to go back to the computer and say, well, surely I would have heard about this if this was actually a problem. So a little bit of Googling around and found, okay, so the, the secret way to enable select play, select 30 select on your TiVo premiere for all those people out there who might be wondering how to do this, uh, you have to switch to the old UI. Hey, finally, a use for the old, for keeping the old UI around. Go to the interface, say, please use the old menus, start watching a TV program, and lo and behold, now select does nothing and you can do select play, select 30 select. Done. Then I change back to the new menus because I do actually like them better for, for finding programs and stuff. And hit the button and it jumps forward 30 seconds. I'm like, yay, fine, turn it off, done for the day. Then when I was actually watching TV with it, maybe it was that night or some other time, the first commercial break comes along and I do my typical thing of pick up the remote and go tap, 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 tap. Maybe usually hit it like six times or whatever. I just have kind of have an intuitive feel for how many multiples of 30 seconds do I think this commercial break is going to be. Uh, and as I get down to like the sixth or seventh tap, look up at the TV, see if I can see a frame from the from the program that I was watching, let go of the button or maybe go back eight seconds. The forward 30 back eight equation is kind of hardwired into my brain after all these years of doing this. Now, what they managed to do on the TiVo Premier Elite, the highest of high end, the most expensive, the presumably most powerful box that TiVo sells is that now when you go tap, 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 tap on the 30 second skip button, 
the video does not change. It freezes on the frame that you were watching before the first time you hit the button, but if it doesn't have time between your taps to change the frame of the video. So you have no idea when you stop tapping. If you go tap and then wait a second, then you'll see a frame of video. Then tap and then wait a second. Oh, then I see a frame of video. I gotta go more. And tap and then wait a second. They've made the performance of 30 seconds skip worse with their more powerful, elite, super expensive, highest end product. It is now basically unusable because how can I skip commercial? Like if I wanted to tap and then wait for it to show a frame, I might as well just scan. That's what I'm doing now. I'm hitting the fast forward scan button three times like an animal to skip, <laughs> to skip commercials. That's no way to live. I don't want to see the commercial scan past me as a series of little fuzzy images. Uh, and the thing is, like, how is that different? What, what do you care if? If it's the images are scanning past you first, I just find that visually uncomfortable because what I'm trying to do is watch <laughs> to see when the program is on again. I don't like seeing the, the snuggle fabric softener bear going dancing by really fast or something <laughs> else. It, it just <laughs> do, do, is it just me? Do you, do you find that like visually uncomfortable to watch something in a fast forward scan with the intent that you're trying to see when you should stop? Like you're trying to watch it to see when should I stop? When do the commercials end in the program? I don't like seeing that, which is why I love 30 second skip because. I know that the commercial is going to be at least, you know, one minute or two minute or three minute. Like you get a feel for how long the commercial breaks are. I don't even have to look at the screen until the fourth <laughs> or fifth app when I know I'm getting near the end. And then I just see frame, 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 30 seconds apart. As soon as I see the first frame that looks like fringe, I let go of the button and maybe hit back eight. You know what I mean? I, it just it, versus the scan thing where you get to go scan, 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 and see the program. And when you hit, okay, I see the program, hit play. It does this back off thing where it realizes you probably overshot. So it backs off, but it backs off way farther than I need it to because it assumes I have the reflexes of an 80 year old or something. <laughs> so now it usually backs me off way into the in, I'm like, OK, this must be the middle of the last commercial. So I'll just let it play. And the commercial ends and there's another commercial. And you're like, it pushed me back past two commercials. So I got to wait until I see lots. Of, it's just incredibly frustrating. I never would have imagined. I never would have imagined <laughs> that they would have made 30 second skip performance worse in their fancy highest end, most expensive premier elite product. So please, keep, please somebody, somebody send them a hardware engineer. I, I think like they're using some sort of CPU in there that's probably about similar to the CPU that's in my washing machine in the basement. You know, it, is, it is a 10 cent part. They cost them nothing and they have, you know, their H.264 encoder decoders and stuff or whatever. My, you know, my wife's MacBook Air has, I don't know what kind of CPU is in My Mac Pro, you know, probably has like a, a $250 CPU, the MacBook Air, however much that costs. I'm saying to TiVo, I will give you an extra $500 for you to put a $250 Intel CPU in my TiVo for me. But whatever CPU you have in there now must cost $20. Please take my money. I will give you 50% profit margin. Here's $500. Buy a $250 CPU and make it so that I can hit 30 second, 30 second, 30 second, 30 second, and it doesn't freeze the video for the entire course of me doing that. It just... It boggles. This is all. I know this is all a repeat of my very first episode. Maybe if you're listening to this, you didn't hear the first episode. <laughs> but TiVo, please, I'm begging you. You you are still the best in the business, but only because your competitors are our cable companies and they have no idea what they're 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 doing. I I don't want them to go out of business. I want them to get better. I I want them to progress with the rest of society, with the rest of civilization. How we get better hardware as time goes on. How things get faster. TiVo can take part in that. Join us in civilization. <laughs> I don't. I don't understand. For a while there, I was thinking that uh, the cable DVR was bad, but I actually think maybe TiVo's worse now. It's not though, because I've used the, these cable <laughs> DVRs. They are. They are worse. They are uglier. They are slower. 
they have far fewer features. They have at all. They are and terrible. They're, and their the reliability of like I said that they record, but it seemed like it didn't, and I don't know why or where did that show go. It's <laughs> they are worse, and like that's a low bar. Like your cable company isn't if that's what you're competing with for hardware and software products. That, that's you know, we've talked about it before. I would have loved for Apple to make a DVR. They're not going to do it. That that's an old technology. I like DVRs. I like what TiVo does for me. I would rather have my Devo DVR than not have it. It's just frustrating to me that they seem outside the the laws of physics <laughs> time for some crazy reason. Yeah. <laughs> and I have one more bonus item. Even uh, though I'm not going to talk about all the other stuff I bought. Maybe we'll do that in the show. I have one more bonus item. Okay. That's vaguely related. Uh, so we've got smoke alarms all over the house as you have to have. One of the ones we have is at the top of the stairs. And this was a smoke alarm that was in the house uh, before we bought it. It's not one of the new ones that we put in. And it was re- pretty old. You could look at it. It was kind of like a, you know, an 80s or 90s style plastic uh, smoke detector. And we do like every six months or whatever, go around the whole house with a bunch of nine volts and replace all the batteries because these are battery powered. They're not, they're not wired in because when the batteries get low on a smoke detector, it does this little beep, little piercing beep once every, you know, 60 seconds or something. Yeah. And then you're like, where did that come from? Where's the beep? Especially, and it always happens like in the middle of the night. You're like, where's that beep? And you wait for it again. Beep! And you're like, where is that? For us, it always happened when, whenever we would have a house guest, it would happen. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and you, you got to find it. It's very difficult to sort of locate where a high-pitched single noise is coming from. If it beeped twice, you'd have like better odds because you could like turn your head and compare. Did that, you know, it, your brain is doing this for you, but like, did I hear more of that in the right ear? Like, like directional sound. Very difficult to do. So you hunt it down. And, you, and that's why you replace the batteries on a regular schedule every six months. So you don't have to deal with that. It's like they're all fresh. I mean, you know, in six months, we'll just replace them all again, even if they're not dead or whatever. It's just easier that way. But this one, we recently did a big replacement. This one was still doing like weird chirping and occasionally making louder noises like beep, 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 like it's going off. And we're like, what's going on with that? Uh, you know, or is it because it's like smoke from the kitchen or steam from a shower? Why is it, you know, and it turns out we're just like, look, it just must be old and broken. It's making too many beeps. We know the battery's not dead. We just put a fresh one. Let's just get a new smoke detector. So down comes the old one, get a new smoke detector from my, my wife, water. I don't know where she picked it up. But it's just, you know, new. It's a smoke and uh, carbon monoxide detector because they usually combine them these days. So I can take it out of the box. This takes a uh, double A's instead of nine volts. Fine. Shove them in there. Push the battery compartment closed. Uh, and this is a talking one. So it says, welcome. Beep, beep. <laughs> Set room name. Is this the bedroom, living room, and when you have to wait for it to, it has like spoken instructions, which by the way, the instructions are spoken at the same piercing volume as the alarm, as the clacks on it sounds when, when there's smoke. And so you hold down the little button when it gets to the thing you want. Ours was at the top of the stairs, it was hallway, so it's like, you have selected hallway. Uh, you know, and then it says, testing, fire in hallway, evacuate, evacuate, beep, 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 evacuate, you know. Fine, whatever, the voice... I guess helps, you know, it still had the regular siren type noise that would wake you up. It was very, very loud. Uh, and and then at the end, it says, carbon monoxide detected, evacuate, beep, beep. And at the end of the test, it says, previous carbon monoxide level was zero ppm. <laughs> you know, because it's just the test thing. <laughs> right. I'm like, all right, fine. So we, now we know what that's going to sound like. It's all set. I bet it will probably, I think, I read the instructions and I'm like, it will talk to you when the, uh, the battery is low. It will say battery low in smoke detector in hallway. I'm like, that's much better than the single beep because then it will tell me where it is. And we only have one talking one in the house anyway. But it will be clear when the battery's bad. Put it up in the ceiling, make little new screw holes for it, click it in there, all set. That was like in the morning. Sometime in the evening, we hear 
the little thing going off. Beep, beep, warning, evacuate, beep, beep, warning. Now, by the way, this is really hurting my parenting because when we're getting this new thing and the kids are in the house, I'm trying to say, well, kids, what do you do when you hear the smoke detector? <laughs> no, like don't hide in your room. Don't start looking all over the house for mommy. You go out of the house. You don't go in the street. You go to the neighbors. You, you know, call the fire. I'm like teaching kids what to do when they hear a fire alarm. And they get this at school and daycare too, you know, that I'm basically trying to avoid them getting scared, hiding under their covers and staying in their room because you want kids when they hear a fire alarm to get out of the house, even if they can't find you or perhaps especially if they can't find you, get out of the house. I don't know if that's what you're supposed to tell kids, but that's what I'm telling my kids because that seems like the most logical thing for me because I don't want them to hide in their bedrooms. Assuming, you know, my parents, you know, my wife and I are both dead in our beds. I don't want them to say, well, I can't go outside the house without mommy and daddy, so I'll hide under my covers. Uh, but if your thing goes off randomly and says, warning, evacuate, warning, like you just got through telling them they're supposed to leave the house. So you can't tell them now, like, you know, like you as an adult know that nothing's actually on fire. <laughs> but you have to tell, you know, oh, it's okay, kids. Like, this is not an actual alarm. But then you're telling them it's like like the, the smoke alarm that cried wolf. Well, when you hear it, ignore it because most of the time it's just a false alarm. <laughs> and then when it goes off for real, they're like, ah, oh, it's just that thing going off again. He always tells me to ignore it, right? So this is bad. So it goes off in the middle of the day. And I'm like, what the, what is it doing up there? It's like, and I think my wife had just taken a shower. I'm like, is it steam from the shower or something? Or is it broken or defective? Or like, I go up to it. I hold on the little button. I'm trying to make it stop. But you, you can't, you know, I hold on the button. It doesn't stop. And I keep pressing and pressing. And so, <laughs> I think I pressed it after it had finished. And it does the whole thing over again. It says testing, <laughs> fire in hallway, testing, fire, you know. So I'm like, this must be the test cycle, but why is it testing itself? And I look up at the little testing button and it says test weekly. I'm like, well, maybe it tests itself weekly and it like has an internal clock and just every week it's going to do that sometimes. It tests, I don't know. So it was finally quiet and, and I couldn't quite figure this thing out, but I'm like, I didn't have time to deal with it, right? So we all go to bed and now you know what happens. It's like 2 a.m. Testing, fire in hallway, evacuate. <laughs> Testing, fire in hallway, evacuate, evacuate, bam, bam, bam. Carbon monoxide detected. I got. I jump out of bed because you don't want the kids to wake up at two in the morning. Jump out of bed, shove the little button thing to make the thing silent. And, and my wife was like, "Take that thing down. That thing comes down now." And I'm like, "I agree. Take the thing down. Pull out the batteries. Go back to bed. This thing is off." This I would say is an unsuccessful <laughs> fire alarm device, right? Because I don't. I. I'm kind of technically minded, but I don't expect to have to like read extensive instructions on how to operate a fire. Was it operator error? Was I doing something wrong? Did I not set it up correctly? So the next morning I said, I'm going to read these damn instructions because you figure with a fire alarm, it's got one button that's test slash silence. It's got batteries and that should be, and this one even talks to you. So I shouldn't, there shouldn't be this big setup procedure. So I find the manual, which I saved and I sit there and I read it. And I read the setup instructions and what you're supposed to do. I'm like, yep, I did that. Yep, I did that. I did exactly that. I look to see if it's going to test itself weekly. It says, no, I won't test. We're not going to test ourselves weekly. You know, nothing about that. Nothing about self-testing or going off randomly. Nothing about false alarms except it says, you know, where you should put it. Yep, but I, I follow these instructions. Don't put it near the stove. Don't put it in a bathroom. Don't put it in a place. You know, all this true. And especially since it's that, you know, it would always say zero ppm at the end. So it's not detecting carbon monoxide. Like it's like, are you, you sure you're not being poisoned? by? It was telling me zero ppm every single time. So it's not carbon monoxide that was setting the thing off either. And it said the word testing at the beginning. So it was triggering the testing procedure. So finally, I got to the section of the manual that explained what was going on. It said, uh, to test your blah, blah, blah fire alarm, press and hold the testing button or use the channel or volume up and down buttons on your remote control to test it. And I assume, although it didn't say this, this is if you have a very high ceiling in a room 
and the smoke alarm is like like a cathedral ceiling or something, and the smoke alarm is up in the cathedral ceiling and you can't reach it, that you can test it and silence it by pointing your remote control at it. So this fire uh, uh, alarm has an IR sensor somewhere inside it. Oh, no. Now, there's no <laughs> television is in the bedroom and totally facing the other direction is not facing, you know, so and we were asleep when this thing went off. It's like 2 a.m. Right? So it's not our remote that's firing it. But there is a line of sight from the smoke detector out the window through the neighbor's window into the neighbor's house. And I can imagine the neighbor probably has. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. An IR blaster of some kind. You know what an IR blaster is? Like you have some device that's controlled by IR, but you want some other device to control it. So you take this IR blaster, which is something that sprays IR in all directions to try to activate your device. And that's why I mentioned before the IR blaster for the TiVo. What was going on was that my neighbor or something over there was watching TV in the middle of the night and just happened to point their remote in the wrong direction or the IR blaster came through there and they're activating oh my, my gosh. My, my smoke alarm in the middle of the night. And it was unbelievable. Your- yeah. So I'm going to say to smoke alarm companies, uh, <laughs> I think the idea of having a, a, an IR sensor in your smoke detector for places where it's up high, that, I think that makes sense because you don't want someone to climb on a tall ladder and it would be nice to be able to test your thing or whatever. Uh, but there has to be a way to disable to disable that because I can literally not use the smoke detector because that's where it's supposed to be the hallway smoke detector. We have them in the bedrooms. This is the hallway one. And the hallway has line of sight, apparently, to sources of IR, let's say. I'm not going to blame my neighbor for it. They're just watching TV or whatever, or whatever they're doing. So that smoke detector is gone. And when I buy a new smoke detector, now I have a new thing to look for on the box. Does this thing tout any feature that allows it to work with a remote control? If it does, I cannot buy it. So let this be a warning to everyone. When you, the next time you have to buy a new smoke detector, you may not know that many of them come with the ability to detect infrared signals. Consider not buying one of those if it's somewhere that you can reach. The end. That's terrible. It's terrible. 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 And, and quite funny, John. It's not funny at 2 a.m., let me tell you. <laughs> not funny at all. <laughs> Oh boy! Now, how is your wife just used to this kind of thing with you? You can never blame this on me. She bought the smoke detector, not me, and I'm the one who has to get out of the bed because she can't reach the ceiling. I'm the one who has to get out of the bed at two a.m. and disable the thing. She still will find a way to be mad at me about it, but that's but it's not actually my fault. Let's, let's keep that distinct. So yeah, and I think she should be very happy with the fact that more or less within a two day window got this whole big reshuffling of, of internet. Uh, television, phone, new television, new TiVo, Blu-ray player, everything all set up, then she didn't have to worry about it. Uh, and that's that's something I should talk about in another show. The effort the, the effort required by me to get a wireless connection to my TiVo in the upstairs bedroom. Not beyond my means as a geek, but there's no way anyone who was not a geek could have successfully done this. No way at all. It was it, intensely complicated. So I think I'm still earning my keep. And as I said, she bought this uh, smoke detector, not me. I should have put a link in the show notes to the smoke detector I'm going to buy to replace this, but I haven't picked one yet. But presumably, I will be able to find one that emphatically does not have an IR detector, and I will buy that. So we went a little long, talked about some stuff that's not really uh, iPad-related, but I think we're done now. All right. (laughs) The the chat room is under the distinct... You know, the consensus that this was an epic episode for you, an epic rant. Mm-hmm. I agree with them. 
it's just it's just my life. <laughs> just <laughs> slice of life. That's what this show is about. I, I didn't fly out to San Francisco to see an Apple presentation. <laughs> you didn't uh, have to. I've been woken at 2 a.m. by talking fire alarms. Different mm. strokes, really. That's right. All right. Well, listen, if, if, you, uh, if you'd like to hear more of John's rants, you can listen to the previous 57 of these episodes. Well, technically 56, because one of them was a public service announcement. By going to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical, you can follow John on Twitter, Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. And uh, he is a frequent contributor to Ars Technica. And read his stuff there. You have a blog now. You have a, well, we'll do more of this in the next, maybe after dark, but there is a, if you just want to hear all of John's appearances across all shows, you can do that by going to uh, 5x5.tv slash people slash John dash Syracuse. There's an RSS feed that just gives you his stuff and his internet connection just dropped. So uh, we will we will let him go instead of getting him back. And uh, you can support the show by visiting our sponsors, getharvest.com slash 5x5, rackspace.com slash 5x5. And, of course, as always, rate the show in iTunes. Really helps us, really helps new listeners find out about the show. And uh, here's a message from John that says, whoops, I hit the wrong button. Anyway, thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Have a good one. Thank you.